Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week Trig Violson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. We're back again, Dave. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Trigby. Awesome. One of the things that I've been uh, seeing a lot uh, in in marketing and, and in the business world right now is, is kind of one of the buzzwords is uh, building communities in, in, in your workforce, building communities in your, your ecosystem. So I thought uh, I, we, should, we should find an expert and talk a little bit about that. So uh, we're blessed to have somebody who's super uh, into uh, and an expert in community building because he's built uh, many. Uh, and uh, I actually had the privilege of helping him out when he was getting started. And he's grown his business to uh, just an amazing uh, extent to that. So our guest today is Mike Keating from Norhart. Norhart is a company based in Minnesota that is a $200 million residential real estate company that designs, builds, and rents apartments and is committed to solving America's housing affordability crisis by reducing the cost of construction. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, before we started, I said uh, I, I said you weren't very funny, but you're 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 a wonderful guy. So hopefully, I'll be able to give, be able to pull some jokes out of you. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm game. Well, this is great. Yeah, it's actually a, a topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart because my son just moved into his first apartment, and he's 20 and uh, got out. And the affordability thing is a very big deal. And you know, we we've we hunted all over the place and found found a place right in his in his school in uptown and uh it's amazing the different amenities and the things that you can do now inside of affordable um apartments and looking through your website it's very clear that you guys have some pretty interesting and exciting opportunities for people that are looking for affordable places to live in a cool community so Tell, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Norhart. Yeah. So at a high level, as we talked about, we build these apartments, but really we're focused on driving down the cost of housing. You know, we're achieving about a 20 to 30% reduction typically, but we believe we can get down to about a 50% reduction. But imagine what that means. It means someday your rent, your mortgage payment could be half. Now, I think there's an important distinction to make here. You talked about affordable housing. We're not actually affordable housing in the traditional sense. We're a company working to make housing affordable. Why that's important yeah, is that affordable housing, the traditional model is you get money from the government, you put it into the project, and then you cap the rents as a result of that. Well, that works, but it doesn't work at scale. You can't solve it for everyone. You can't take enough money from the rest of the economy and put it into those properties. It just doesn't mathematically work. The only way you solve housing affordability for everyone is by solving construction costs. Amazing. So, Mike, how many different properties have uh, does Norhart uh, build and manage? Yeah, we've got uh, a couple dozen, but it's about a thousand units overall right now, and we're building at about three to five hundred units per year. Wow. Three to five. And is that all in Minnesota or is that? Yeah. Is that everywhere? 
Yeah, right now we're all in Minnesota, although we do have some manufacturing capabilities off in Wisconsin, and we're looking to expand into Texas uh, and start growing a little bit more nationwide. I'd love, I'd love to see somebody who's growing uh, that extensively. So I, I think one of the things that is, is really impressive when you look at some of the marketing collateral that you've done for your communities is that they are very, they're all very independent, unique. And they all have a, a particular uh, sense of home to them. Mm. You talk about the process of how do you design something that makes people feel comfortable? Such a great question. It's something that we've been evolving with time. The way we kind of categorize our categorize our properties right now are series. So we have a series one, which is sort of a traditional style building, less amenities, still granite countertops, stainless steel appliances. Then we evolved our thinking to a series two. The series two, now you've got much higher end amenities. You've got sky lounges, pools, coffee shops, you know, you can have all the way up to restaurants. And now we've started to evolve and we said, what would a series three property look like? What would that community even look like? And for us, our first answer to that was Norhart Oakdale. And we got really serious about hiring top end designers and people that think about this deeply to create the kind of community people want to live in. So Nora Oakdale is, uh, it's in Oakdale. It feels like Woodbury. Very nice uh, area of the Twin yeah, Cities. For, yeah, for people who uh, who don't live in the Twin Cities, Oakdale and Woodbury is sort of the first ring suburb. Yeah, yeah, but a nice, nice up and coming area of the cities. There's a brand new transit line that they're building literally right now that will have a stop right at our front door. The building itself is seven stories tall. The first floor is 22 foot high ceilings. Uh, with a restaurant, coffee shop, co-working space, the entire amenity space on that floor is like 300 feet wide. It's like 400 feet wide. It's the entire width of the building. Up on third floor, we've got thousands of square feet of amenities, including game rooms, movie rooms, art studios, and much more. Up on fourth floor, we got a spa, sauna, uh, a pool, uh, and, and kind of this courtyard area in the center. And then up on the roof, we have a uh, rooftop patio and grill with these penthouse suites that they are 22 foot high as well, with views of downtown Minneapolis and St. Paul. So it's really reevaluating, rethinking what we can do with apartments to elevate that experience, which seems a little counterintuitive because at the other end is we're also working to reduce the cost. So we're trying to push both avenues at once. Think about the iPhone, right? A few decades ago, computers were clunky, you know, slow, what have you. We could the dial-up internet was 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 a way to connect online. But today you have a supercomputer in your pocket. You get better quality and lower cost. And the way you do that, you solve that, is innovation. When I was a kid, my dad uh, worked for uh, IBM, and he he once held the record for the biggest deal in the history of IBM. And it was uh, he had sold um, five gigabytes of space and i can remember going to the ribbon cutting and it was a data center and it it was in uh it it was i it was in this very particular glass building that you guys are probably know because you because you live here in minneapolis like i do but it took up three floors of the building and now i have 50 times that in my pocket at any given time that I paid five hundred dollars for. It's uh, 
it's amazing how things get uh, smaller and bigger. So, okay, so you're 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 building, or would those, that be considered a, a luxury apartment, or is that still yeah in the realm of affordable affordability? Yeah, so so it's a luxury, and our prices are current market prices. And I can talk more about that if you like, but we're focused on driving down the cost of construction. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be good because, you know, Dave and I uh, are homeowners, and so we don't really know a whole lot about the housing crisis in America right now. So what what is an affordable rent these days? So what does that really look like for somebody? Yeah, so the traditional way I describe affordability is sort of the percent of your the area median income. Anyway, it's probably around a thousand dollars per month for a unit. It's maybe the average estimate for affordability. It depends on your income level. It depends upon the area. Um, but the way we think about it is that we could provide lower rents today because people look on our website and they say, "Mike, you've been talking about housing affordability, but your rents are just in line with everyone else. Like, what the heck?" <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, why why does that even make sense? And my response is, yes, we could lower our rents today. And if we did that, we would solve housing affordability for a few thousand people. That's great. That's admirable. But it's not the goal. The goal is to reach to a point that we're achieving it for everyone nationwide. How do we solve that? You solve it by building the system that builds apartments. You know, Elon Musk talks about how it's hard to produce a car, but it is 10 to 100 to 1,000 times harder to produce the system that builds that car. We're working on building that system. Think factories, think infrastructure, think supply chain. And that takes a lot of capital. And so we're taking the profits, putting it in that system, scaling that system up over the next decade. We're hoping to reach about 192,000 units with a 60,000 unit per year pace. Here's the match. At that, those sorts of levels, we're sta- now starting to have a meaningful impact at housing supply. And supply and demand factors kick in. With more supply, prices start coming down naturally. And the magic is it's not just for our own residents. It's for everyone in the communities that we're building. Mm-hmm. More supply across all of the residents across the community, and then there's better, more expectations at a better price. All of a sudden, the iPhone just came out, so now Nokia needs to drop keys off of their phone, right? I love that exactly. It, Mike, when when we started, you you mentioned that you had worked with Trigvia at SBDC a little bit to do some marketing. Oh, that was a long time ago. That that means that this is a startup and this is something that you formed. And so one of the things in a rapidly growing organization like Norhart is that you have to hire great people. So how did, how did you create the community to do this innovative cost forward kind of, kind of a company? Yeah, you know, the this this taps on the biggest lesson that I've ever learned. And it took me a number of years to learn it. In fact, even after I met Trigvi for the first time. Uh, and what we had originally it was it was a good staff, but I would say it was an average staff. And it was really hard to achieve anything extraordinary. It's virtually impossible to do that with an average team. What I've found and what I've learned from people much smarter than me is that you want to hire the very best. 
And when, you, when we say the very best, we truly mean that. We fly people in from other states to come work during the week and fly them home on the weekend. Wow. Uh, we are, our engineer, our, our property manager, they're probably literally best in the country at what they do. We have an employee who in 2007, Steve Jobs announces the iPhone. Then Steve Jobs walks off that stage and our employee follows that very presentation on that same stage. It's that kind of caliber of people. Well, most people, most business leaders start thinking, or they say to me, they say, Mike, that's expensive. Can't afford that. And it's true. It is expensive. But here's what miss most business leaders misunderstand. The best people outperform the average by two to five to 10 times as much. So if you look at it instead of a cost per person, but instead you look at it in a cost per unit produced, the best people are actually the least expensive. So the people who think they can't afford the best, my response is you can't afford not to. And once you bring on a team like that, it changes the game. And there's so much more I could talk about, but that that's a flavor of what we're trying to do. I love that. Yeah. And that, that really flips the thinking because if you're if you're in constant cost cutting mode, which a lot of companies are, a lot of shareholder things end up like that, where you're focusing on this quarter's performance at the expense of all else, you it sounds like you're investing in the long term future of your organization as well as the performance. Because if you were hiring a flash in the pan and trying to just get through the quarter, you wouldn't find that person that was at Apple. You would find just some workaday Joe that could crush through some stuff for 15 bucks an hour and throw them a happy meal and they're happy. So that's so interesting. And I'm, I'm assuming, and I'm sure you're seeing fantastic dividends out of that on a long-term basis as well. Right. Oh, even short term, uh, you bring on with someone amazing and they change your, they, they open doors. They make things possible for you that you didn't know were possible. You run into roadblocks in business all the time. And when you have amazing people, they burst through those roadblocks. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a long-term play and it's a short-term play. Cool. Love it. I, I think you, you have this admirable goal of, of making housing more affordable. And I, it's admirable that you're hiring great people. But I think the third element of that is how do you keep them? And how do you create the culture to make people want to buy into that, not just to get not just for a paycheck, but to 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 give you a, 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 and to go above and beyond. Yeah, we could have a a whole podcast just on this one topic. Yeah, uh, the the simple like if there was one thing to do well to create a great culture is just hire great people, right? Because the people become the culture. Now there's so much more to do beyond that, but that's step one. Now, how do you keep those people? Is one of your questions. And one thing is we often say we have to pay top of market. I never want pay or benefits to be the reason why somebody leaves. And so we actually tell people when they get calls from recruiters, because they do literally all the time at our company, we tell them to take the phone call. Then the reason is multiple fold. One is that we want what's best for them. None of our pay or benefits or all of it vests immediately. They can leave tomorrow with no issue. I want to earn the right for them to be here. And then once they take that phone call, my next thing is if there's something better, better pay, better benefits, better working conditions, let us know. And we make changes not to just your own pay, 
we may change the whole pay scale for everyone that it makes sense for as a result of that new information. So that's that's one thing, but that still doesn't keep people. That's sort of just a bar or hurdle to hit. Mm -hmm. See, most people join organizations because of the maybe reputation of the organization because the recruiter sold them on it, maybe because that pay package was a lot better. But that's not why people leave. People leave because their interaction with their coworkers and with their manager, right? And even with me, the, the leaders of the organization. And so we're really picky on that, that the people element. So we talked about hiring great people. We have an extraordinarily intense hiring process. I think our acceptance rate is something less, it's like 0.2%. Give you some perspective, Harvard only accepts 4%. And I know the question there is, how do you do that in the world of construction? There's so many people and uh, hard to find people. Yeah, it's such a dearth of available talent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we ended up hiring a 14 recruiters when we only had 100 people employed. And they look for people that aren't looking for jobs and they actually build out a pipeline well in advance so that we're filtering and bringing in the very best people. Uh, so that's a key element of it. The next key element is for many of our positions, not all, but many, there's a trial period. So the first two weeks you're out here, uh, you're being evaluated. Mm -hmm. And because we can think we hired the best person, the interview went really well, but they can, I don't know, kind of game the system and come out and be someone different. So at the end of the two weeks, your coworkers will decide if you make it on the team. And those coworkers evaluate you compared to our values, which are stated, uh, part of orientation, all up front. They're evaluating that. And then the last step that I'll, one last little nugget I'll throw out there is even if you make it past all of that, uh, we stole this notion of the keeper test from Netflix. And the basic idea is as a manager, if your employee were to quit, how hard would you fight to keep them? If the answer is you would fight tooth and nail to keep them, awesome. They're the right person. But if it's anything shy of that, they're not the right person. We need to be helping them out of the organization. See, most companies know they want the best. Most companies know they don't want the worst. But where we're different than most companies is we don't, that most companies are okay with the average. Nothing wrong with them. But we're, we just don't want the average. We want just the very, very best. So that's a little bit. <laughs> I, I totally want to jump on the keeper test because I've, I've heard that before. And I think a lot of what employers find in this day and age is that they're finding people who are working just hard enough to not get fired. Mm. And so the, the concern from the employer standpoint is even though this person isn't, isn't ideal and even though this person isn't great, they're at least doing some, the, the, something. And so there's on the scale of things, there's nothing, there's something, and then there's everything. And yeah, I want everything, but if I get rid of this person who's doing something, I go all the way to nothing. Yeah. So what would you recommend that person do who has that fear and that, and is saddled with that employee who is kind of meh? Yeah, that's the, that is why most companies have an average culture, an average engagement rate of 34% or whatever that is. Uh, it's because of the the leader's mindset. It's that fear that you just talked about. And so I, we run into the exact same fear. And for us, like our average people are still pretty high caliber. And so it's really tempting to be like, ah, 
fine. It's fine. It's fine. We're good. Uh, and just to stick with them. But I think what I've learned is you just have to be brave. If they're just fine, then you've got to have the conversation with them. This is what I want to see for improvements. If you're not seeing improvements, let them go. I know it's harder initially, but if you have the right infrastructure to hire on great people behind that, it might take a few months or maybe a few months ramp up period. But I have never come out of that decision and said, I'm worse off. I'm always like four months later, I'm like, dude, I am so happy I made that call. Yes, it was hard. Yes, it was scary. Yes, it was frustrating. But we are in so much better of a spot today as a result. I think as a leader, you just have to remind yourself of that point and have the bravery to do what you know you know needs to be done. Well, that's always the trick, right? Is the brave you know what needs to be done, but do you, can you can you have the bravery to to, to do it? And Listen. what I found is is that and the the older I get, and the more people I talk to, and the more conversations I have like this, the more the less. Culture certainly matters. Money certainly matters. But the big underlying factor that that is unique to everyone is their own risk tolerance. Mm, and yeah. how much are you willing to roll the dice on people, processes, money in order to really accomplish something great? And a lot of times people fall short because it's it's hard. And they talk a good game. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know you do the you, you you achieve greatness and you go for greatness, but greatness also means sometimes taking a step back to move two steps forward. Yeah, I've seen many leaders that talk about that, but yeah, it comes down. It really, you're right. It comes down to your mindset. Where's your head at? If your head is truly in the realm of I want to achieve something that will change the world for the better, then you're going to make subtle, even unconscious kinds of decisions. You know, I ran into a case uh, a few weeks ago where I, or maybe a few months ago, but I, I didn't, my head, mindset was not in the right spot. And an employee came to me and said, hey, I've got some, one of my employees, they got an offer from another job, you know, what should I do? And I was like, well, yeah, you know what to do, just, just make it happen. But in that kind of soft response, that leader then took that as oh, maybe I need to be more cost-focused and not actually raise the wage to keep that person. See, from my perspective, I wasn't, I didn't do anything. I just, I just nodded and let them run. But what I failed because my mindset wasn't right in that moment, I failed at really conveying the importance, the passion, the energy around these principles to give that leader confidence to do what they knew they actually needed to do. So this, this mindset in here really does trickle down to the rest of the organization. You've got to get your mind right before you'll have a successful organization. Love that. And just, just to, to level set here, you know, you don't, you're not managing a team of half a dozen people. How many people work at Norhart? Uh, close to 250. 250 people. Good crazy. Yeah. Now you, you, you mentioned failure and you're pretty open about learning about failure tell tell what's your greatest to screw up that you've made that started <laughs> oh my here? gosh every year i have a new greatest <laughs> what's the what's the current and then then we can talk about your greatest hits yeah uh well maybe i'll dive into one of the most interesting i think because early on in my career um 
So kind of backing up, my dad, my parents actually started this business. Um, we lost everything growing up, and my dad was even kidnapped in Peru. Oh my God! Um, and we, my parents, we'd be building these small buildings every year. I'd be on site helping build these buildings. And by the time I went off college, you know, I didn't want much to do with the family business because I didn't want people to think it was given to me. I, you know, I wrestled with my own ego. But my dad and I uh, kind of hopped in together uh, for a few years because I realized I wanted to make a meaningful impact. I could do it with this business. And so we doubled the size of the company together. And then my dad overnight um, passed away. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, I was young. I was inexperienced. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was getting feedback and insight from people like Trick V helping me along. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, overnight I was CEO. You know, it was a very small business, but I was still CEO of this, this small business. And I didn't know what I didn't know. I, I really, I was inexperienced. And so then the next big project, the project I was doing right after my dad passed away was a project called Emberwood. And the city knew, they could just tell that I was inexperienced and uh, they weren't going to let anything fly. Uh, and they actually shut us down twice. And the second time they shut us down, they looked at me and said, Mike, dude, you're you're inexperienced. You don't know what you're doing. We need you to hire real management. And so I had to go out and find somebody quickly, which is the worst way to do it in like three days so that my crew could actually continue working. Otherwise the city wouldn't let us continue going forward. And so, um, found someone, but it was, it was kind of a nightmare. Anyway, a few weeks before we we're supposed to open, there was this water weed, thousands of feet long, was buried 15 feet in the ground and my contractors, uh, we had a leak. There was a pinhole leak somewhere in this water main. We could tell by the pressure test, but we had no idea where it was. And so uh, I was out there in my relatively nice clothes, uh, out there with the excavator in the mud, looking for this leak, digging around for weeks, for long, long days. Uh, we eventually found the leak. And I know just a few days before we're supposed to open, the city comes out and says, Mike, there's no way. There's no way you're not opening this building. I know you got people lined up. They're not moving in. You got to find something else to do with them. We worked like crazy through the nights. And the last day, the city officials came out for a full or a half day inspection. Half the staff were there, or half the inspectors were there. And um, they looked at every nook and cranny. At the end of the inspection, the head building official came down to the basement with me and said, Mike, I know we were hard on you in this project, but honestly, right now, this is the best project that we've opened up in this city. It was like, I am like, but it was years, years of feeling like I was not good enough uh, before getting past that hurdle. But the truth is every stage of our company, we're doing something new and I'm still not good enough. <laughs> I'm still struggling, right? So I'm always in this feeling of not being good enough, but that's exactly where you want to be in order to grow and to push things forward. Mm -hmm. Are well, you open I, about that with your employees? Yeah. Well, what was that? Are you open about that with your employees? Or do oh, you absolutely. try and give them a sense of confidence? No, you know, no, no. My, uh, my, dad, my dad was a college professor and, you know, oftentimes he'd teach classes that he didn't know anything about. Right? <laughs> and I, I'd ask him, well, how'd you do that? And he said, oh, it's easy. You just have to stay one chapter ahead of the, the, the class. So. <laughs> 
in business. So if you're taking on a new endeavor and you're, yeah, it's going to be great. We're going to, we're going to do it. Do you, are you, or do you just like, man, I don't know. Let's figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so I totally sympathize with the stay one chapter ahead. That's, that's my entire life. But, <laughs> but what I will say is for me, at least I want to be fully transparent. I find that being authentic, real, honest with who I am, honest with where I'm at is actually way more powerful um, because the right employees, the best kind of people that we work with, they get behind that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times leaders often say it's lonely at the top. And mm -hmm. I think part of that comes from them wanting to project a certain level of confidence, but they don't necessarily feel that internally. And so there's a little bit of a divide between you and your staff as a result. For me, I, I, I'm not pessimistic. I'm still positive about the future, but I'm honest about our weaknesses, our mistakes, our failures. Um, if we have a big mistake, I mean, literally within days, there's a full team meeting where everyone gets to hear about exactly what happened. In fact, we do employee engagement surveys and we get our feedback on those surveys and we share that with the teams quite openly. Uh, and my results, which are typically a hidden thing in this survey, Mm -hmm. They get to see my results openly and honestly. And last year, we took it a step further, and now we show all of our results on our website. You can read all of the comments, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And trust me, there's plenty of ugly. But the reason I do that is I don't want to be fake good. I mm -hmm. want to actually be good. And the first step to be actually becoming good is to say, hey, I'm Mike, and I have problems, but I'm working on them. And the magic is when you're honest like that, not only does that help you improve even more, but the people around you give you grace and support and help to gain and build that in yourself. And then they become more humble and willing to take feedback as well. I think that's the only way to really get to a high level of performance. That's, that's really powerful, Mike. And I think as you're as you're talking about building culture and how to be transparent and honest and kind of share that fosters the ability for people to speak up and mm -hmm. especially if you're hiring the right people you want their input and their feedback and it sounds like you have a, a community or you built a culture where mistakes aren't just tolerated but the risk taking that goes into making a mistake is embraced is yeah. celebrated yeah we had yeah. uh someone who made a uh, like a million dollar mistake and uh, they came to me a little terrified and basically yeah, well, expecting that this is the end of their job uh -huh. i told them i'm like dude i would be crazy to let you go because now you've just learned what causes that million dollar mistake you are more <laughs> valuable to me today than you were before that mistake and uh, we talk about that at orientation too. I do all the orientations. Mm -hmm. And we talk about the, the keeper test. We're very open about it. I said, this is the scariest thing about our company. And say so some people are a little afraid of that. They think, well, I'm just walking on eggshells because if you make a mistake, you're just going to fire me. And I say, no. How do we decide who to hire and fire? What's our values? Mm -hmm. Is there anyone in our values that talk about making mistakes mean a bad thing? No. It's actually polar the opposite. We want to achieve great things. We want to change this world. And that requires us to try new things. 
This will result in mistakes. In fact, if you're not making any mistakes, I am concerned because that means you're not really trying. For sure. But how do you how do you set up and kind of kind of looping back a little bit to I, I know in big projects like this, you probably are are working with funding sources and partners, mm-hmm. people that um, might want to have feedback or input. So how how do you handle like bankers that want to be much more conservative than what you're looking to push forward, right? Because you know, decreasing the cost of rents in your buildings is probably not chief on that investor's outlook where they're saying, you know, I, I actually want you to double your rents because then that means more money for me. So how do you handle that balance between more conservative or, you know, cash flow based versus values based conversations? Yeah, that's a great question. That's something I don't know if we have a perfect answer for. Yeah. I think one, well, one thing we have done because our costs are so low, um, I don't have any equity investors. I mean, that that might change in the future, but it's just my Even wife. Even in your building st- projects? Yeah. Yeah. We're a hundred percent owner of all of it. Wow. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's not a small thing. No, not at all. I mean, if you think about it, our traditional costs are 25% less than what the value is. Well, banks are typically willing to lend at 75% of costs. And so, or at least a value, there's some, there's some things we have to work out with the banks on that, but generally they're funding most, if not all of each project. And so we don't need equity investors typically as a result of that. Now the world's changed a little bit in the last couple of years because of rising interest rates, but generally that's been the case for us. From a banker's standpoint, as long as the all of their key metrics kind of pencil out and the deal makes sense, they're on board. Um, from an investor's standpoint, we have something like our Norhart Invest platform where we've actually taken a little bit of a different approach. It's more like a preferred equity structure where we define the interest or the rates that you get, because I am afraid of investors that are just truly on the, they're wanting this 2X return kind of thing, because that's kind of not in line with our dream of solving housing affordability. So we're what we do then is we just, we just outline what your returns will be, come in agreement with that. As long as we're hitting those metrics and providing the returns people want to see, uh, they're happy. Cool. I want to get back to the the people element because uh, you, you uh, at Norhard do something that is well. It's not in wholly unique, but it's certainly unusual. That um, what's your PTO structure like? <laughs> yeah, it's unlimited, and so I know that's uh, like in software that's not uncommon. But in the world of construction, I don't know anyone who's ever done unlimited paid time off for like hourly employees, like low level employees and uh, yeah it's it was a bit terrifying but it's awesome and when you have great people they don't abuse it right that's the magic and what we've learned is we will give as much power freedom or flexibility as we can to our staff even down to giving everyone credit like not quite everyone but almost anyone who needs it anyone who asks for it will get a credit card with unlimited spending power right like we don't put any kind of restrictions on that kind of stuff because we find that the best people, we just need to get out of their way rather than putting a bunch of rules and boxes around them. Have you had anybody abuse those things? I mean, a limited credit card with spending power, I'd be I'd be scoring lunches every day. <laughs> probably, why you know, probably why I don't have one, but um, 
yeah, I mean, did you have, did, did that create, did, did some people who surprised you bubble up to the surface and take three week vacations or something? Sure. Um, so if, if someone's taking an excessive vacation, it, it's never really been a problem, but we'll just have a conversation and say, Hey, you know, it seems like it's been a little higher than sort of what we see typically. Oh, okay. You had, you know, a family death, you know, there's some really legitimate reasons, not a problem. It's, it's fine. Um, so I, we haven't seen too much issue there. I think the, the credit card is interesting and we haven't had any problem with that. But one of the things I frame it with at orientation is I say, guys, imagine for a moment, it's a hot, awful week. And I know I hired you as an electrician or a plumber or a designer, but today I need you to go out and shovel rocks. If you ever shoveled rocks before, it's terrible. You get like, like one rock on each shovel. It's like, a, yep. it's, it's awful. And you're out there in the hot, 90, 100 degree weather. And a few days in your shovel breaks and you're like swearing my name underneath your breath. You're really just upset. But at least you've got this company credit card, right? So you can go to the home improvement store. You go to the ch the checkout line and you, you see it. You know, that that uh, shovel 6,000, the one that can shovel rocks. You're super <laughs> excited about it. Hey, you didn't get to the checkout line. That's when you really see it. The ice cold bottle of Coca-Cola. Mm. <laughs> You think to yourself, dude, Mike is an idiot. This place is crazy. I've earned this. I deserve it. You take the Coca-Cola and you put it on the company credit card. Okay? That's scenario one. Oh. Scenario number two. Same hot, awful week. Your shovel breaks. You go to the store, get a new shovel, get to the checkout line, and you see it. But now you think to yourself, dude, my team has been struggling. My team could use a pick-me-up. My team could benefit it. Or some ice cold Coca-Cola. And so you take the Coca-Cola and you buy it with the company credit card. And I tell everyone, I say, dude, if you're the first person, I don't want you here. But if you're the second person, I love and adore you and I want more of you. See, I can't create enough rules to define those two. But what matters to me is where your heart is at. Yeah. Is your heart in the right place when making these kinds of decisions? And uh -huh. if it is... You're in a good spot. I think I would fall into category number three, which is um, I would think, oh, crap, I broke my shovel. I, I ruined a company asset. I need to go get a new one. <laughs> I put it on my own credit card and then pretend it was the same shovel you gave me. <laughs> well, I hope nobody in our company is afraid to, uh, to be open when they need something. But, yeah, that could happen. Wow. Okay. So, uh, I, getting back, getting back to the housing crisis, what's what's the next five years looks like? I know you, you're opening the Lux building, which is cool, and I bet it's uh, you know giving a lot of people to to the opportunity to flex a little bit more. But uh, I think before I answer that question, where where are we as a country going in terms of housing? Yeah, it's really interesting right now because home mortgage rates. I think I saw recently were the highest they've ever been. Home prices are still increasing. And so home ownership affordability is like the worst it's been, I think, in 20 or 30 years. Uh, so that's moving more people into rentals right now. Uh, we haven't seen the increases as much in the rental market that we've seen prior years. So that's good news. The, the scary news looking out the next couple of years is the new apartment starts has fallen off a cliff. In Minnesota, in the Twin Cities right now, it's fallen by 90%. What do you mean? Why it's fallen what's by a, like... What's an apartment what start? 
Oh, uh, people starting new apartment projects. Mm -hmm. So there's projects that are under construction that will be finished up. Those are deliveries, but starts is someone breaking ground, doing a new building. Mm -hmm. And so that's fallen by 90% of the Twin Cities, by 70 to 80% in the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. And so you pair this home ownership affordability getting worse, more people moving into rent, pair that with no new supply or much less supply of apartments. I see a perfect storm over the next couple of years where uh, apartment prices might climb substantially. And so we're trying to get out ahead of that and to produce more of those units, which is what we're working on. Oh, and especially when we're talking about trends, right? So yeah, one of the things that I was reading recently is that the Airbnb trends mm -hmm. and, and all that stuff like on, on homes and vacation properties and things that we're, we're nearing a time of reckoning where the interest rates are probably pushing people where they're not going to real, really be able to make their money back. Rising. That probably doesn't impact you terribly hugely in the apartment space on, on where you are. Like, I'm, I don't know if people can Airbnb out or, you know, how that, how that works, but you know, how do you, do you see any other big changes coming? You know, it's like the senior affordability problem and the fact that the boomers are all moving out of their homes and they're, they're looking for more affordable or downsized space. You know, what, what are those big trends that are coming that we should all be cognizant of? Oh, I think the big trend that we're seeing right now is rising interest rates are causing these deals to just not make sense. Wow. And so, like we said earlier, it's dropped by 90% here in the Twin Cities. And the reason that is is simply because the interest rate is so high, there's no money left over for the equity investors. And so the equity investors aren't interested in those projects anymore and everyone's pulled out. I mean, literally, it's a bit of a frenzy right now in the market as a result of that. Where we have been positioned pretty well, again, is our costs are lower. So even though now our costs have risen because of the interest rate expense, we can pivot into doing maybe an equity play or some other kind of investment play where other people are going from the equity play into nothing because the numbers just don't work anymore. Right. Um, so that's where it's been beneficial to us. I think long-term trends have been kind of interesting. After 2008, we saw the shift from home ownership into rentals. Uh, and I think last time I looked, that shift was going back to home ownership. But now things are so chaotic. It's We had the, the COVID, which impacted supply chain, which now supply chain is better, but it's like, impacting interest rates, which is impacting construction. It's like this wave that's going through the economy and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out over time. There's one other thing that I wanted to talk about that I think really makes Norhart unique uh, and just really fascinating. And that's actually how Mike and I reconnected. So what is Norhart Invest? Mm. And Norhart Invest is a um, investment opportunity that people can put their money into. It offers them high rates of return or much higher than a bank account. Uh, and you can lock it between uh, uh, six and 24 months. And then you get your money back after that time period. Um, yeah, it's a, if it uh, is an online account, super easy to use. And uh, it feels a little bit like a bank account. It's not, not FDIC insured. Let me be very clear about that. It's an investment, uh, but we offer higher rates of return to compensate for that. Is that, is that something you're using to build buildings or is that a separate project unto itself? 
Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so we talked about the fact that construction or the uh, interest rates are rising. So if we have a $100 million building, our cost might be $75 million. Typically, the banks offer $75. Now, the banks may be only offering $55. <laughs> so there's still a pretty healthy profit margin of that entire building. We need to bridge that gap to get us back up to $75 million to cover our construction costs. So that's where No Hard Invest comes in, is that's a vehicle that we use to invest in these new projects uh, to fill that bit of a gap. We do have additional protections on No Hard Invest itself, <laughs> where that's a separate entity. Investors put their money into it, but we put our own money, our own capital into it as well. And so if one of our deals, heaven forbid, loses money, the investor does not get hit first. We get hit first and we have to lose the assets that we put into it first before the investor will lose any of their assets. Cool. So we're, we're, our goal with Nord Invest is really to protect the, uh, the uh, investor. Our dream is to bat a thousand so that no one ever even has to think about losing their money. Now it is an investment. You can lose your money. This is not insured. Very clear in all of that. Uh, and make sure to read the disclaimers we have on our website. So draw, drawing uh, a line from point A to point S, or I shouldn't say F because that means something different. Point G, point A to point G is you're actually offering the general public the opportunity to help uh, invest in and get returns on build afford building affordable housing and building a much larger community in order to help solve the, the problem that you're that you're focused on. Exactly. And we went the more expensive route with the SEC. We went what's called a reggae, but allows us to allow anyone nationwide to invest. But it took us a year. It took us hundreds of thousands of dollars, thousands, you know, I think like a thousand pages of legal documents. Uh, we've got to get audited. We've got a background checks. There's a whole bunch of stuff in order to protect investors. I think it's actually really good. But we went that route first. People thought I was crazy for doing it. <laughs> rather than going the easier route of going to institutional investors. But I did that because we, I'd much rather give the public an opportunity to have access to investments like this that they normally can't. And plus it's a really powerful way because you can now be invested in helping long-term solve housing affordability and earn a great interest rate on top of that. Uh, it's To me, it's a really a win-win and, and we get the kind of investors that way that are excited about what we're doing. So it's been a lot of fun. Well, Mike, this has been great, and thank you so much for joining us. And as one of my uh, former counselees from the small business, uh, the SBDC, I wish I could take credit for any of this, but it uh, it was uh, neat to see you on the ground floor and see where you've gotten to today. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if people are more interested in uh, in Norhart, and obviously the investment opportunity I think is, is really neat, where can people find out more information about yeah, you can go to our website. It's norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. One other fun thing is we have a show or we have a couple of shows, but one of our podcasts called Zero to Unicorn, where we look at people who have built businesses or built enterprises that have made a billion dollar kind of impact. And our um, season two is just about to launch. And actually the first guest of season two is Michael Uslan who's the originator, the executive producer of Batman and the Lego movie, you know, National Treasure, some really incredible franchises. But what's interesting is it took him 10 years of 
pleading, of, of, of pitching, of challenging, of encouraging, of finding the people in order to get Batman off the ground. So it's just really an incredible story. Love the Lego Batman, though. <laughs> he was involved with Lego Batman, too, yeah. That's so cool. No, I, lo- I, I love Lego Batman. I'm a huge Batman guy. So awesome, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh-